This is Lisa Miller and Associates, Florida Insurance Roundup, your podcast on the people, issues, and regulations shaping Florida's insurance market. Now, here's Lisa Miller. Welcome, friends. On October 10th, 2018, Hurricane Michael struck Florida's panhandle as a strong Category 4 storm with sustained winds of 155 miles per hour. As we record this podcast 15 days later, 29 people in Florida have died in this storm and another 10 people in Georgia, North Carolina, and Virginia. In fact, I believe the search and rescue efforts are still going on, seeing who else has survived. The devastation in Mexico Beach, Panama City, and parts of the nine-county region is worse than what I saw in Hurricane Andrew 26 years ago in Homestead, south of Miami. It is something you must see and then hope you never see it again. Beyond Hurricane Michael's cost in human lives is the cost of rebuilding, rebuilding the homes and businesses and infrastructure that are gone. In fact, AIR Worldwide estimates that insured losses, that's just insured losses, will be between $6 billion and $10 billion, and many of these structures are uninsured. While there was some flash flooding, Michael was just an old-fashioned hurricane, lots of wind, and a tall nine-plus coastal storm surge. Trees and trees and trees fell on homes, ripped those homes apart, with almost 400,000 people without power, and in several cases today, still without power. Today on Florida Insurance Roundup, we're going to find out just how well Florida's building codes, both old and new, held up in Hurricane Michael's catastrophe, wind, and power, and what's needed in post-hurricane mitigation or resiliency as we set about the enormous task of paying the insurance claims and rebuilding better and stronger. Many of the homes from Tallahassee to Panama City were built to a code prior to Hurricane Andrew. That's what makes this area so charming, are the beautiful frame homes with screen porches and ceiling fans. But those are the homes that did not survive. Joining us today with their insight in the field post-Hurricane Michael and having worked on many storms are two catastrophe adjusters that I met with and spent time with in Panama City Ground Zero a few days after the storm. Today with us we have Jason Brew of Catalyst Insurance Management in Newport Ritchie and Jeremy Harding of Barrett Harding Insurance Agency in the same area of our beautiful state. So Jason, welcome. Pleasure to be here with you, Lisa. And Jeremy, I'm glad to have you on the show. Well, thank you for your time, and thank you for having me. Also joining us from Fort Lauderdale is Jay Neal, President and CEO of the Florida Association for Insurance Reform. FAIR, as the acronym it goes by, promotes citizen education and especially mitigating property risk through smart renovation and rebuilding. So, Jay, tell us about what you do and how you spend your days and the wonderful work that you're doing in the in the um, insurance industry and beyond. Thanks for having me, Lisa. Firstly, I think we try to seek balance solutions that are sustainable, uh, and we involve all the stakeholders in trying to make reasonable public policy choices that benefit the Florida economy, real estate, and we do that because of the importance of insurance, public policy, on the economy and real estate. Our foundation focuses on educating consumers about insurance issues. For example, the need to have flood insurance, 
we focus on resiliency through mitigation. And lastly, closing the protection gap, trying to make sure that we do have homes and businesses and communities insured. That means that we're going to have quicker recovery. And we've seen the time and time again the consequences of not having flood insurance. So we really need to focus on making sure that Floridians understand that they need that coverage. Thank you so much, Jay. And we'll start with you, Jason. Tell us about you and, and your history and, and your passion for helping people. I've uh, been in the insurance industry about 10 years. Prior to that, um, came from a construction background, uh, high-rise rigging, uh, framing homes, things of that sort. Passion for just helping others. Um, love to do search and rescue, community involvement, things of that sort. Got into claims adjusting. Several years back, um, Jeremy and I headed out for Irma. That was our first large, long deployment disaster. And, um, you know, been loving it ever since. That's just great. And, and Jeremy Harding, tell us about you and your insurance agency and what you've been doing. I'm the uh, vice president of Barrett Harding Insurance in uh, Port Richie and Lutes. Been uh, in insurance for, I say, since I was born. I'm, I'm fourth generation in this business um, in the insurance sales side. I also come from, my family owns a uh, construction uh, general contracting firm. So I, I grew up in that business as well and actually had my own construction business for uh, several years out of high school and um, you know, decided to go the insurance route. Also with the adjusting, I've, uh, you know, Jason and I have gone out and kind of teamed up doing the, uh, the claims adjusting and have learned, learned so much through it that it was a, a great fit with my background of construction and insurance. Perfect. And so between these three guests that we have on today are very special because of, you know, Hurricane Michael and the devastation that it caused. Jay Neal, back to you. With your interest in making sure that homes are more resilient, that homeowners get back to work more quickly, quality of life returns, and that after the devastation, we have a, a path forward. I know you've worked on building codes and other resiliency initiatives in our state and around the country. What advice and what thoughts are you having after seeing the devastation about what th- what we should do differently, build back better? What's on your mind today in terms of making it better after Hurricane Michael? Well, I first say that people need to understand that they need to get out of Dodge when they're told to. And uh, that has nothing to do with the strength of the buildings, but I think that's a paramount. We need to have a culture that understands that when you're told to evacuate, you got to do it, and we've got to help our neighbors. But in terms of mitigation, we need to adopt the Miami-Dade building codes statewide. Uh, we've seen, what, five hurricanes, uh, and none of them have hit Miami-Dade. And that's not to say that they won't in the future, but there's absolutely no logic in having one higher standard for Miami-Dade uh, and not having it for the rest of the state. That's one. Uh, two, we need to spend more dollars and more awareness on mitigating the existing structures. Uh, we saw in the New York Times there was a, a new-built home right on Mexico Beach that was, was basically unscathed with devastation all around it. Why? Because it was built through an enhanced building. Uh, we spent about 15 cents per Florida resident on giving cities, counties, and nonprofits funds to spend on mitigation, and that's got to change. And FAIR has made various proposals in the past, and we certainly will in the upcoming legislative session, to increase that spending so that local governments and nonprofits can help people uh, understand that by uh, putting in windows that are impact and wind resistant, by enhancing their roof connections to the wall and, and, and to the deck, uh, that we can save $6 
according to FEMA, for every dollar we invest. So post-catastrophe, we're going to save $6 for every dollar we invest. And that, that should be a no-brainer investment. That's exactly right, Jay. And I think one of the things that you've been such a champion for is to try to get that building code tougher throughout the state. Now, there are those that say that if you do that in the panhandle where we have socioeconomic standards, you know, it's just a very poor rural area that we would be pricing people out of their homes. And I'm going to throw that over to Jason and Jeremy because you have a background in construction. You're seeing these homes that are destroyed. Tell us what you saw survive. Tell us what uh, roofing mechanisms you think were better than others. And if what your thoughts are about a 150-mile-an-hour code versus the 120-some-odd that's in the panhandle. Jeremy, we'll start with you. So from the insurance standpoint, I think it is an absolute no-brainer to have the tighter, tougher codes. From my experience out in the field and adjusting claims, they do work. Those homes where the homes around them, I would say would have been tough to even survive in the house through the storm. Um, the newer building code homes would have been survivable. I mean, yes, there was damage. Yes, they had broken windows and missing shingles and things like that. But um, for you know the structure, that they're still there. Coming from the construction side, I've been on the other side, and I, and I understand the cost of construction, and some people can't afford it and things like that. But having the experience on both sides, I guess I would side more toward the, that yes, it needs to be there, because these people can't afford to get back on their feet if the home is damaged and they can't afford to get the home. You know, So, so it, it's, a, it's a catch-22. They, they can't afford for the disaster to happen, and as severe as it will be, and from my experience, too, a lot of these people were uninsured. So if these homes were built to a higher standard, they would come out on top, whether there's insurance involved or not. So the new codes absolutely do work. Um, I guess each area is going to have to have the conversation about if their people can afford to implement these codes. But I think a statewide look at these should be really considered. Another thing that I noticed was the standing seam metal roofs, which, yes, they're the most expensive metal roof you're going to put on the home. I have yet to see one that has been ripped off of a home. So, Jason, I know you when you and I talked, you shared with me that the what are called standing seam roofs, which we commonly call metal roofs, were the ones that you saw that were surviving. Talk to us about the installation of those roofs, you know, how it should, what it shouldn't be done, and what you saw when you, they weren't installed properly. Well, I can tell you, you know, the one thing that we did see was the improperly installed metal roofs, which they would go over the shingles with them. They, rather than rip the shingles off and properly install them, they just put furring strips and attach the metal to them. Those allowed for an air pocket or an air gap between the two roof surfaces, and those were totally devastated. Those peeled the roof decking off like a beer can. But the properly installed to the latest codes crimped metal seam roofs you know they unless there was a breach from the window which generally there wasn't um it's newer code built homes uh, they they held with a significant wind load portion on the structure they stayed on the only damage that we did see to them was impact related so you know the uplift pressures the the, the load pressure on the top of the actual roof it didn't allow for any wind to get in any gaps and allow for it to be torn off. And, you know, flip over to the other side, shingle roofs, they don't allow for any type of wind load that we saw. 
FBC 110 mile an hour rated shingles, it, they came off like you're peeling post-it notes off a post-it pad. Wow. You've been in the Panhandle from Tallahassee to Panama City, which is about an 80-mile stretch. And you've been in the field within hours after Hurricane Michael. And I'll throw this over to you, Jeremy. What did you see in the first couple of days versus what are you seeing now when you're in the field? Are, are things settling down? Are they worse? What do you anticipate is going to be happening in the next week? First of all, the people have been very good-spirited about it so far. Um, which I, I thought was remarkable and, you know, speaks a lot about Floridians. Nobody was blaming or pointing fingers or upset. It was kind of a, a mentality of let's figure out how to get back on our feet, get going again, which was, was refreshing to see. As for, you know, the, the distance, I mean, obviously the closer you get to Tallahassee, the, the least amount of damage, you know, and then as you get through over into that eye wall section, it's total devastation, honestly, and that, you know, when you get closer down to Panama City, um, and that track goes all the way uh, as far as we've been up toward the Alabama border. It's a lot of rural setting areas, but total devastation is probably the most appropriate. And Jay, I know that you, being in South Florida, saw a lot of devastation. What do you see going forward? We have a legislative session starting in March. And if you were standing in a legislative committee right now, what would you say to legislators right now? I would say that we have to... Uh, have a culture of preparedness. That's what the FEMA administrator calls it. I don't think we have that. Uh, you know, we have a problem with affordable housing, no doubt. We would never give somebody substandard drugs or lower quality food because there was an affordability issue. There are ways that we can provide incentives to develop affordable housing. And we've just got to look at options and have people get behind understanding that the state has to have a role in this and the state legislature has to be proactive. And so we'll be promoting legislation that will divert some of the cash buildup surcharge that's currently on the cap fund and invest that in mitigation. Cities and counties, if given the resources, can come up with the solutions and do so on a local basis. So again, we're not going to give you a lower standard home that endangers your life and your safety and your assets because it costs a little more. We're just going to have to figure out how to bridge that gap. One of the other things you saw firsthand, Lisa, being out on a claim with both Jeremy and I was one of our claimants had just had a brand new roof installed and had minimal damage to the roof because of that. Where she suffered all of her damage was breaches in the windows, and that just goes to show that the newer codes put in place for the roofing systems are great, but it needs to be used all around. If you have a breach in a window, you can still have uplift on the roof deck. And going back to the affordability issue that Jay touched on, for instance, like Jeremy and I both said, we're insurance agents first off. And with these older homes that we saw affected in the rural areas of the Panhandle, a lot of them did not have hurricane clips, which when the wind got in there, it upset trusses, it blew roof decks off, things of that sort. Just mitigating a home with clips, hurricane clips, is an 18% savings on the wind portion of the premium under a program I know you're quite familiar with. So those little things right there, we talk about shingles and the rating on that. We need to be informing the consumer more and more about retrofitting their homes and pushing the cost savings basis over the life of, you know, the carrying cost of the loan and let it, helping them understand that with maybe a thousand, two thousand $2,000 to retrofit with hurricane clips, 
over the life of that insurance policy, say 30 years, it's exponential, the savings you'll have. And Jason, I want you to talk about a new roof credit and how I call it a pretty sporty credit. And it is a sporty credit. I've seen new roof premium credits from insurance companies when someone gets a new roof and they tell their insurance company with the proper filing documents. I'd love you to talk about, Jason, what you've seen in savings for new roofs. So on the new roofs, um, homes built prior to 2002, you see a significant savings. So for instance, most people don't, they're not told to get a wind mitigation from their insurance agent because their roof's sold. Well, once they do put a new roof on and they get that wind mitigation credit, we've seen just from the shingles meeting Florida building code, 13 to 16% savings. And I'm quoting right off the Chubb policy I'm reading right now. Of course, the decking has to be renailed. That's another 13 to 15% savings. And if it's a home, let's just take my county, for instance, uh, Pinellas, Pasco County. Generally, if they're built, you know, 80s or newer than hurricane clips, you know, you're looking at 60% savings off the wind portion of the premium on your insurance policy. And in our areas that are wind-borne debris regions and coastal regions, that wind portion of the premium could be 70, 80% of your total insurance cost per year. That's very sporty, and that is great information for our audience. Go ahead. Yeah, and I've got a a firsthand example of of that savings. I purchased six, seven years ago a 1973 home that's approximately four and a half miles from the the Gulf. When I first bought the home with the older roof and all of that, the insurance premium on that was $1,200 a year, which wasn't bad. But I redid the roof, redid the, the nailing of the decking, did a higher wind load shingle, redid the strapping on my trusses, uh, roof-to-wall connections. And uh, so the only thing I'm missing really for credit-wise would be impact windows. That brought the premium down under $500 a year for that premium. So that was a, you know, it's called $650 a year savings that I've been getting over the last six, seven years. And that should continue on for many years to come. Perfect. You gentlemen have been more than just insurance adjusters, more than just insurance agents. On the first day after you traveled here, as soon as Hurricane Michael passed, what um, did you see and jump in to help with that you shared with me in terms of fire and rescue? Jeremy, you want to tackle that one? Absolutely. You know, before any disaster, you know, or after we, we show up to any disaster scene, you know, one of the things we like to do is to do some community service, get out, meet people, talk to some people, what's going on, how can we help? And we teamed up with the Greensboro, Florida Fire Department, uh, which is a volunteer fire department. And the first few days was really spent trying to get some dangerous trees off of people's roofs so they could at least have shelter. Um, we were clearing roads so that fire trucks and ambulances could get through and, and things to that sort. There was a, a call for a house fire, fully involved house fire, and um, Jason and I and, and one other friend that came with us were the only ones at the fire station with the fire chief, um, and it was a rural area, and they didn't have water and things like that, so we actually jumped in the tanker truck and brought the tanker truck to the fire and, and uh, worked alongside them to actually put out the house fire um, wow. just because they were so short-staffed, and a lot of their you know a lot of their volunteer firefighters were, were at home dealing with their, their own families and their own issues. We did hundreds of hours of chainsaw work, cutting trees and moving them out of the roads and just helping anybody we could as we were around. 
That is true American spirit. And I want to thank both of you for appearing on this show. I know that you are handling hundreds of claims, trying to get to homeowners who many do not have electricity and the challenges that we face there. But, you know, Jason Brew, Jeremy Harding, true American heroes out in the field, working in the insurance industry and beyond. So thanks again for being on the show today. Well, thank you. And uh, the greatest thing is at the end of the day, we can step back and, and you know, see the results and the people we've helped. That's the greatest payment we could ever have. Thank you again. And you have a great day. I want to thank Jay Neal uh, for appearing in our podcast today. He is a champion of resiliency and public policy and has been doing that for almost a decade. He is a partner to many industries, including the real estate, construction, and insurance industry, and others that care about sound, insurance, public policy, as well as housing. So, Jay, thank you for being on today. Well, thank you, Lisa. It's a pleasure. What a great trio of guests we had today. And I know each of you feel very educated about old and new building codes and what makes it and what does it. And we had some great examples of where the rubber of public policy really meets the road. In fact, we learned how the decisions we make today, how it will affect millions of Floridians in the future and the billions of dollars in insured value. And we give those discussions to help us as we weigh the cost and benefits of policy change not just insurance policy, but public policy. In this case, building codes and mitigation and resiliency techniques. Hurricane Michael did have a silver lining of sorts. Although the storm surge wiped out much of Mexico Beach, sadly, rains and flooding weren't much of a factor with this storm. It moved fast, with rainfall of only 4 to 8 inches, and only local flash flooding was reported. While most of the building stock is older and thus more severely damaged than it might be otherwise, on the plus side for insurance interest, the panhandle from Tallahassee to Panama City is sparsely populated. Mexico Beach, at ground zero, for example, has about 2,000 residents. Outside of Panama City, which only has about 38,000, most of the nine county regions probably have less than 100,000 total. It's very rural. In fact, in conversations with homeowners, they were worried about their fences to keep their cattle close to their homes. It is a beautiful, charming part of Florida, and what we're struggling with is the devastation there. Industry analysts are saying, though, that the Florida insurance companies are going to be just fine. They're financially strong. They have reinsurance programs to cover these costs, and we will be able to build back better. So what do you think? Does Florida need a tougher building code statewide? And what lessons should we take away from Hurricane Michael when we do rebuild what was damaged and destroyed? What should that look like? We would love to hear from you. You can call us and leave your comments or questions for our later reply on air right here at the Florida Insurance Roundup. The number to call is 850-388-8888. Again, that number is 850-388-8002, or drop me an email at Lisa Miller, all one word, at lisamillerassociates.com. I so appreciate you taking the time to listen to this very informative podcast today. Thank you for being a part of it. The Florida Insurance Roundup, all of our past podcasts can be found at www.lisamillerassociates.com. 
Remember, at Lisa Miller & Associates, we have a passion for policy and client success. I'm Lisa Miller. Until next time, be safe and see you on the trail. This has been Lisa Miller & Associates' Florida Insurance Roundup, your podcast on the people, issues, and regulations shaping Florida's insurance market. For more information on today's program, please visit us on the web at www.lisamillerassociates.com. Thank you.